All right. So, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 say, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will rise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem in the Passover feast, Many believed his name when they saw the signs that he, that he was doing. But, when, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for himself and knew what was in man. Thank you, Casey. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the great joy it is to be together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you um, have spoken to us and you do speak. I pray that this morning as we consider these words, your word, that you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you teach us? Would you give us hearts that are in fact soft and uh, and open to what it is that's on your heart uh, for us, for your people, for your kids this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is this, part four, five? We've been working through the book of John. We're only getting started as we've just finished chapter two. I was thinking about it this week, and um, can I confess something? I don't know if I should actually say this out loud, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I was, I was feeling nervous about, wow, we're only in chapter two. Was this really a good idea? <laughs> The book of John is, is a mammoth of a book. It's, it's a long book. Um, but I, I, I still feel, I feel a very deep conviction um, that, that God has led us to begin this journey um, and is still absolutely in it. I imagine along the way, it, there might be moments where it feels like, man, this, this is long. So this is taking a while. Um, can we switch it up? Can we, can we do something about my, my boredom? Um, that, I think that's good to have moments like that. 
where it feels like, man, the journey is long, because I think that, that means we're probably um, aligning our spiritual lives, if I can put it that way, with real life. And it's good, I think, to have those moments of honesty where we say, Lord, help. This is long. This is hard. My, my heart tends to wander. Lord, help us. And so that's part of why we're working through um, one of one of the Gospels, one of the longer books in the New Testament, um, because I think it's good for us as God's people to slow down, to take deep breaths, resist the temptation to simply want to be entertained, and, um, and walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. So that's what we're doing. And if you're just jumping in, uh, I want to encourage you, like, come back. Like, seriously consider, like, going on the journey. It's going to take us, like, well over a year. We will, in fact, actually have some pauses along the way. We'll do some different things to break it up for Christmas and and Easter and things like that. But I want to invite you, jump in. Go on the journey and see what what God might do as as we walk with Jesus. Now, concerning the text that Casey read for us specifically, this, um, this is something else. Jesus cracks the whip. It's around Passover, as we read. He's with uh, his disciples. I don't know if he's assembled the whole team at this point, but he's He's begun his ministry, it's, he's launched, it's public, he's called people to follow himself, and um, he enters into the temple. Now, this would have been highly symbolic. Uh, we don't know at this point if there was speculation, if there were rumors going around about this Jesus, who is this Jesus? If anyone had been speculating that perhaps he was the Messiah, I mean, John the Baptist himself said, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. There was messianic talk about Jesus going on. And so if he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel finally come, it would have made sense that he was making a beeline for the temple. Only what he did when he got there, um, I don't know if anyone could have been expecting that. Jesus cracks the whip, flips over the tables of the money changers, and begins to drive everyone out. It's wise to always be careful um, when, when we're tempted to read in tone to Scripture, because that can, that can, that's a very subjective thing. Yet, um, and I've said this before, I think sometimes the way the story's being told, I think one is being invited to imagine, almost to enter into the story and put yourself there and smell the, 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 the smells. And, and I mean, he would have had to have gotten loud, right? I mean, he was driving out oxen and lambs and, and the other things that were there and people and flipping over tables. I mean, it would have been loud enough just given the, the, the setting 
all of the people and the animals and the money and the coins going back and forth. And for him to raise his voice over all of that and start cracking the whip, it would have been an intense moment. It would have been shocking. It would have been shocking. Is it shocking? When you think about Jesus in that way, perhaps using that tone, I think it should be at some level. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might, in order that the world might be saved through him. I would argue that that is Jesus's MO, at least as we find him in the gospels. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He's come not to crack the whip and drive people out of the temple, but to save people and to invite lost sons and daughters, brothers and sisters home. And so when we see Jesus doing this, cracking the whip, And driving people out, it's slightly shocking, and I I think it should be. I think if we know Jesus, there should be a bit of a, whoa, what is Jesus? What's happening? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did he do this? When is it appropriate for a Christian to start flipping tables in the temple? Maybe that's the more uh, personal question. Jesus can do whatever he wants. And he doesn't have to answer to anyone. But his followers, uh, I think the followers tend to screw it up. We struggle a bit to know exactly when and why and how and when is it appropriate. When is outrage a Christian virtue? If I can ask the question that way. Let's, um, before we answer, before I attempt to answer that question, let's talk bias. Let's, let's, um, let's consider our biases before we begin to answer that question. Number one, uh, there's a couple of, I think, biases that we, probably most of us will sort of lean towards. Uh, Some of us love Jesus with the whip. You have no problem with this, and you're like, yes, yes, give it to him, Jesus. You, you let those capitalists know. Some of us, um, no, not so much. In fact, some of us, I think, would prefer to sort of airbrush this moment. The idea that Jesus would, would violently confront certain people and drive them out. is almost like it's a bit of a shock to the way we, we think about Jesus. Some of us... I want Jesus to return soon and execute justice on everyone we don't agree with and can't stand to be around. Some of us 
I want to simply pretend like Jesus never said things like, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to join in. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of death and all uncleanness. Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Says Jesus. Jesus is always consistent in his character. And Jesus perfectly embodied the character of God. Cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is always consistent in his character, but depending upon the situation, sometimes he was shockingly merciful, and other times he was terrifyingly confrontational. This is Jesus, whatever your bias might be. He's all of those things and then some. That said, when is it Christ-like to go apoplectic? on people in the name of Jesus? Or when is it just our own bias, anxiety, or sinful nature getting the best of us in a difficult situation? When is it Christ-like to start flipping tables in the temple? When is outrage a Christ-like virtue? Okay, so what's actually going on in the temple? Let's back up a little bit. What's happening in the temple that would have led to Jesus um, doing that? A feeling so intensely about the, the situation, what was going on. A few things we need to understand about the temple. Number one, um, and this is, not, this is some, not some exhaustive Old Testament explanation. But a few basics. Number one, the purpose of the temple was to create space where people could get close to God. That's why the temple was built. Because God wanted to get close to his temple. He used to, he used to meet with Moses in his tent because he wanted to be close to his people. Eventually, he directed Solomon to, or his father David, ultimately Solomon, to build this temple so that he could meet with his people regularly, so that God's presence could come and be with his people. That was always God's vision from the beginning. And that's why the temple was built. But it wasn't just a building. It was, it was more than that. It was an elaborate system of sacrificial offerings and purification rites that would be facilitated by appointed priests on behalf of imperfect people, sinners, like you and I, so that they could worship, so that we could bring our prayer requests into the presence of God. So it wasn't just a holy space with some like spiritual looking uh, things, you had an altar or statues. There was stuff going on in the temple. 
sacrifices. And indeed, a blood sacrifice was necessary because when a guy like me, the chief among, among sinners, if I can put it that way, wants to enter in to the presence of a God who is unfathomably holy, blood is required. Blood is required. Genesis chapter 4. It's the first time that sin is mentioned in the Bible. Very first time. Not Genesis 3. The serpent, the deception, the rebellion. Sin is mentioned as the rebellion plays out. The man and the woman who chose to trust themselves over and above their creator, God, something fundamentally began to break down. It was almost like this cosmic uh, domino effect ensued. The actual outworking of that cosmic event was two brothers ended up breaking a relationship and one of them murdered the other. And the Bible talks about sin crouching at the door, waiting to pounce. Cain murders his brother Abel. And when God asks Cain, where's your brother? I love how God's constantly pursuing murderers. That's just like God. What happened to your brother in Genesis 4.10? It says, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Something about sin leading to murderous intentions, sometimes even leading to the actual shedding of blood, the hands of one brother against another. And we have all been caught up in that. In the same way the two brothers were caught up in this event, this, this sort of cosmic rebellion that took place because of the decision that the parents Adam and Eve made, we too, like Cain, have been caught up in this, this cycle, this system, this, this global, universal, historic, eternal situation. We're guilty just like Cain. And if you think, no, I'm not, God is impressed with my outstanding morality and stellar ethics. You are out of your mind. <laughs> We've all sinned. We've all sinned. We've all sinned. We're all guilty of Abel's blood. Whether it's just the intentions of our heart, or perhaps you relate more with Cain or Abel himself. You know you're not perfect, but all your life, it seems like you've been the brother who's been sinned against. And for the life of you, you can't escape the cycle. Whatever your experience in life is, sin is a reality that we're all born into. And because of that, we can't just simply go prancing into the presence of holy God without some sort of a blood sacrifice. It's actually, it's, it's sort of an ancient 
concept. Um, we could think of some analogies to, to sort of understand it by, but it's, it, it's, it's hard because we don't, we know nothing of the world of the temple and cultic sacrifice. We do know about sin. We do know that sin is reality. So blood is required. This, this is why Jesus, when he was challenged, what right do you have to come in here and start flipping tables? What sign do you give us? He says, tear this temple down. And in three days, I'll rise it back up. I'll raise it back up. Of course, he was talking about his death and his resurrection. That was the sign. He knew that blood was required, but he was busy doing something more permanent. He was preparing to make a sacrifice that would actually not just be symbolic, but perfect for the world. The sellers and the money changers were arguably uh, providing uh, a well-meaning service. This, this comes up quite a bit. I feel like I've said it many times in this, this room, but you know, we're so quick to sort of like um, condemn those money changers or those religious folk or those hypocrites. But I think if we'd been there, we may have seen it slightly different. The money changers were actually trying to help facilitate this, uh, this process of, well, I need to make a sacrifice because I realize I'm unclean and God's holy and I want to come into his presence. Um, but I, I've just traveled like 100 miles. I don't have an animal with me. I have some money, but it's unclean money. Is there any way we, I could exchange it for temple currency and buy a sacrifice while I'm here? And they would created the system to serve those people, the sojourners, those who'd come from far off that they might experience the presence of God. And so there was this whole system that had been set up that I would argue that it probably began with good intentions. But the system had become corrupt. What had started out as well-meaning, people providing spiritual service had become a complex system of religious bartering that it had, in effect, made it even more difficult for those on the outside to come close. And this made Jesus furious. The system that, to be to give benefit of the doubt, the system that had been created to facilitate those far off coming close had become corrupt. So that in essence, it had become even more difficult for the outsider to come in and experience the presence of God. This, I would argue, is what made Jesus furious. Furious. Enough to sit down. I don't know, how, how long would it take you to make a whip? This was not like just sort of all of a sudden he just lost it and he had a really bad day, he didn't sleep well. No, he went in, he assessed the situation, I imagine, and was, no, not in my father's house. Not this, not like that. And he makes a whip, he flips tables over and he drives the people and the animals out. I'll, I'll say it this way, when spiritual insiders those who are supposed to be helping others come inside begin creating hurdles in the name of holiness or religious piety such that the lost and the broken get pushed out. Jesus cleans house. 
me say it again. When the spiritual insiders, those who say, well, I belong, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that God has accepted me, begin to intentionally or otherwise create uh, hurdles in the name of holiness or religious piety in such a way that outsiders get left out or those trying to come close find walls being erected all around them, this makes Jesus furious and he cleans house. This, this is why Jesus cracks the whip and starts driving everyone out of the temple. Amen or oh my. So, what are the implications? What, is, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Last time I checked, um, I think, I'd like to think that Grace City, um, we're, we're, we have little to hopefully no interest in creating hurdles for lost, broken people, people just like us, wanting to come inside, not just in this building, but in the family of God. People looking for hope. People with some really crazy ideas, notions about what God is like, actually expecting some sort of a bartering situation to develop. You know, that's a lot of people, they, they, they come to God thinking that, look, I, I know that I'm unworthy to enter into the presence of God. But maybe if I bring God, uh, I don't know, some, some symbol of penance, may, maybe somehow I could convince him that I really am sorry, then he'll, he'll let me in. And we create these sort of like systems of spiritual bartering, thinking that surely God expects something from me. And I've said this before, all God truly expects when the lost son or daughter comes home is empty hands. He's not waiting for our, our our eloquent, heartfelt, contrite speech of, I'm sorry, and I promise I'll do better. I promise I'll make it up to you somehow. I think Jesus told a a story about this. And before the lost son could even get more than a couple of words out of his mouth, the son threw his arms around his dirty son and just began to kiss him, embrace him. And he told the servants, go into the house and get the best robe. Yes, the best robe. The father's robe. And put it around my son. Cover him. My lost son is home. And I think that's what we all want. I really hope that that's like the heart of Grace City. That we are like a little city within a city trying to love each other and build something that actually embodies the grace of God. But the system always tends towards corruption. How many of you know, like, it's one thing to start out really well, good intentions, good hearts, but then somehow, like, us humans have this way of just complicating things. The system tends towards corruption. Jesus said in verse 24 that he wouldn't entrust himself to the people because he knew the heart of all men, all humanity. I think sometimes, well, I'll speak for myself. It's easy to think that 
the money changers, the proverbial money changers and those who've like set up the tables and, and they're selling the, the sacrifices and they're exchanging the money, like, oh, that, I, I know those people. I know those people. Although those, uh, and I'll be at the risk of being a little controversial. I'll, I'll show you my bias. I tend to think those people are the, um, the more conservative type. And I'm not talking political per se, but just, you know, the theologically much more conservative, much more concerned about upholding like the standard of biblical ethics. And I tend to think, oh, though it would be those people in the temple that Jesus drove out. And I don't think that's right. Jesus knew the heart of all people. Later on, we'll find Jesus' own disciples being just as bad, wanting to re-erect. They were, I can imagine, at least a few of his disciples cheering him on. Yeah, Jesus, show them what's up. And Jesus is probably like, oh, if, if you only knew, if you only knew what I knew about your heart. Um, I think even if you have a more sort of um, liberal leaning, I can put it, these are very loaded words, I know that. But you're like, yeah, 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 I don't, I, those, those uptight conservative types always talking about sexual ethics and this and that and the other, and, and, and I'm glad I'm not like that because I'm much more, more liberal and you know, I just, just want to love everyone. And, you know, and if God wants to change someone, then he'll, he'll convict their hearts. And we don't need to talk about all that. And, and what, the, those people can become just as dogmatic in their, their way of thinking about God. And they create their own sort of systems of spiritual bartering. And if you don't see Jesus this way, and if you don't think like I think, well, then you're not welcome here. And we can end up flipping the table on the table flippers. We all come to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, <clears throat> can I borrow your whip? <laughs> because I've got this group of people over here, and I, you're probably focused on some other people, but I can, I can, I'll take care of this church for you. Just let me borrow your whip. And then we'll go in there and just start cleaning house. Cleaning house. Because somehow we think that I've got the, the higher ground, the spiritual high ground, the moral high ground, the biblical high ground. Somehow I've arrived at the, the, the more perfect conclusion. And so we do it to each other. I'll, I'll never forget when I first... Um, began my journey into full-time vocational ministry. I had to raise my own salary. That's fun. I was a missionary. So I had to go around asking people for money. You're not supposed to put it that way. You're not supposed to talk about it like that. But essentially, I was going around asking people, like, hey, can you give me some money? I want to be a missionary. And it's funny, along the way, by far the most generous people that I met were those quote-unquote conservative type. Went back to the, the Baptist church that I grew up in, Visalia First Baptist Church. Wonderful church, very conservative. People wear like ties on Sunday morning and you know, it's just kinda, it's, in my mind, it's much more traditional. 
And um, they all sit in, actually they don't sit in pews. Pews are, are much more cutting edge these days. But it was that vibe. It was that vibe. It was a conservative kind of vibe. And everyone took the Bible very seriously and, and all that stuff. And I met the sweetest, most tender-hearted, loving people that I have ever met in my life. Those conservative folk that I would have been so just ready to write off as like, you're, you're the kind of people that Jesus would deal with. Even just the way you dress is going to put off some kind of people. And that was my sin. That was my hypocrisy. Because God sees the heart. And we do it to each other all day long, pointing the finger at one another. But Jesus sees the heart of all people, and this system tends towards corruption. Christ-like outrage is reserved for those who profess to be guides, but are actually self-righteous gatekeepers, making it harder for the broken to come in. Instead of freely offering God's abundant grace made available through Jesus' blood on the cross. And it can take all sorts of forms. In our words, in our attitudes, sometimes in the way we dress. When I start acting and engaging with people in a way that make it harder for them to experience the love of the Father... I'm the one that Jesus is going to deal with. I'm the one that's going to outrage the Messiah. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't command his kids to conform to his will for our lives. We sang the song this morning. God, you make all things work together for good. For the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. What is that good? What is that good that we often sing? This is Romans chapter 8 where we're getting these words. If you read just past Romans 8.28, the Bible actually tells us explicitly what that good is. It's that Christ would be formed in us that we would begin to become less like Simon the sinner and more like Simon, the man that God saved and is reshaping, recreating to become more like his child. It starts messing with my desires, my perspective, the way that I see the world around me. It begins to challenge me. The way I sort of go about, um, yeah, my ethics, my politics, my relationships, money, sex, time. It's all on the table. And just because Jesus flips tables and is outraged in the face of hypocrites 
those who have perhaps started out with good intentions ended up going the way of, of spiritual bartering, creating obstacles for those who had come from far off to experience the presence of God. He flips those tables, but that doesn't mean he doesn't at the same time, those same people that he tears down walls for, he begins to deal with like a good father. Like a good father, he disciplines his children. And he says, now I want you to change. I'm going to begin to convict you in certain areas of your life, certain ways you've been viewing yourself, your body, the people around you, your money, your politics, even the church itself. And he begins to confront attitudes, inner motives, and all of these things. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. We're mistaken if we interpret God's correction and discipline as rejection. On the contrary, God corrects and disciplines his children because he loves us. Are you feeling the tension? I hope you are. What this means in the context of a a local church family like ours is that stuff is going to get really really messy some of us want to uh, create boundaries in the name of upholding biblical integrity that's good that's good Others of us want to simply say, anything goes, come one and come all, because God's grace just knows no bounds. That's also super good. How do we do both of those things at the same time? That's going to get messy. That's going to get really, really messy. You know, our our mission statement, our vision statement as a church is we exist so that anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus Christ. They're just words. Until we actually like try to do the stuff. We exist so that Anyone. Oh, what a wonderful word. What a, what a wonderful idea. Who came up with that? Do you realize if we actually, um, by the grace of God, start living that out in a communal way, do you realize how messy that could get? Ridiculously messy. We're going to be bumping into each other all the time. It's going to be messy. And some of you, um, I reckon, maybe not you in this room, but I know some people, it's like, you're, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you've got the stomach for it. I don't know if I have the stomach for it. Sometimes I think to myself, what have I done? Like, we just, this is just so complicated. We say stuff like, at Grace City, one of our values is, is belonging with boundaries. Belonging with boundaries. And it's, it's this idea, what I've just said, that anyone comes in. There are no stipulations No bartering, no exchange. The exchange has already been done for us. It is the great exchange. It's an eternal exchange. Jesus spilt his blood for us. 
So if you want in, the price has been paid. Just come. Just come. Empty hands required. But once you're in, once you're in, Jesus begins to move the furniture around. Jesus begins to deal with us as his people. He's Lord. He's master. The New Testament actually uses this like extreme language that as a Christian, I am a slave to Jesus. Whatever he says goes. Full stop. It's extreme. And it's so good. It's so good because he's a good king. He's the best. He's better than I am. I'll tell you that. I am a tyrant on my best day. But Jesus, he's good. And so there's this great tension. It is so incredibly messy. And my final point is this. This will require us to radically depend on the power and guidance of God's word and the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. That's what it does. If, if we actually take this moment seriously, Jesus cracks the whip. Hold on. Should I do something? <laughs> can you hear that? Can't hear it, can you? Jesus comes into the temple, he flips the table, he cracks the whip, it's intense, it's shocking. It's utterly shocking and it's wonderful. And if we would invite him to come and do that kind of work in our hearts, in our community, oh, what a ride, what a ride. It will require us to be utterly, radically dependent upon God's grace at work like on a second-by-second basis. We need to come to his word, not as a suggestion, but as our daily bread, our sustenance for life, and invite the Holy Spirit to make these words more than just spiritual-sounding words on paper, but living words that work in our hearts. If we can continue to to kneel before our king with that posture of dependence. Lord Jesus, we can do nothing apart from you. Then I think that he can do something beautiful in such a mess. I think he can do that. And I want that for us. Can we stand together? Worship team, will you join me up front, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. You are a good father. Would you help us? Even as we examine our own hearts, our own motives, our own temptations and tendencies to accuse others. Lord, would you, would you search my heart? 
begin to, to maybe highlight, uproot things. Lord, you're so gentle. I know sometimes you can be extremely aggressive, but you just, you know what we need. Father, would you help us? As we worship, um, by all means, sing out, sing with all your heart. Or if you need to just simply be quiet, you can do that as well. If you'd like to come forward, have a moment where you just humble yourself before Jesus. This is our little altar up front. That's how we like to think of it. You can come forward. Someone, someone will probably pray for you. If you'd like to maybe have a little meeting off to the side here, this is the time for that. Confess your sins. Confess your pain. We pray for one another and we can grow together. Let's do that as we worship.